will continue now with the discussion of the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the discourse on the noble search, the noble quest, from which we will branch off into several other suttas, since I want the focus of the study to be not on the sutta, any individual sutta per se, but on the content of the Buddha's enlightenment as revealed through the sutta, or these suttas. And last time we saw the, or we followed the sutta through the account, the Buddha's own account of his training under the teacher Alara Kalama. Under Alara Kalama, who was one of the meditation masters of the period, living in the state of Magadha. The Bodhisattva had learned and mastered the meditative attainment called the base of nothingness, Akinchanyayatana. Then having mastered this attainment, he went to his teacher Alara and reported this and Alara was so pleased with his pupil that he offered to appoint the Bodhisattva to a position equal to himself. In other words, to make the Bodhisattva a co-leader of their community of ascetics. But the Bodhisattva realized that this Dhamma or doctrine and this practice he had learned from Alara Kalama did not, does not lead to complete enlightenment and to Nibbana, but will lead only to rebirth into the base of nothingness, the Akinchanyayatana sphere of existence. And for this reason, the Bodhisattva didn't remain satisfied with that doctrine since he was looking for the ultimate, not just for a blissful and peaceful temporary abode within samsara. And so he left Alara Kalama and continued his search elsewhere. And so now we come to the next paragraph in the sutta. He says that still searching for the ultimate good, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, I went to Uttaka Brahmaputta and requested permission to join his community. Okay, now the account of the Bodhisattva's training under Uttaka Brahmaputta is almost exactly parallel to that under Alara Kalama. But there's one important difference to be mentioned, and that is that Uddhava Ramaputta himself had not attained the highest level of realization within that system. His name means Uddhava, the son of Rama, and from the paragraphs that follow, when talk or when the text speaks about one who has achieved that highest attainment, it's not Uddhava, the son, but rather his father, Rama. So it seems that the father had appointed the son as the leader of the community, but the son, Uddhava, had not achieved the ultimate level of attainment which his father had achieved. So we have, for example, the text speaks about Rama having realized with direct knowledge that Dhamma. And when the Bodhisattva comes to Uddhava, he says, in what way did Rama declare that he had entered upon and dwelt in that Dhamma? So it seems that Rama has expired, he's passed away, and now the Bodhisattva has to get instruction from Rama's son who has not had personal experience of the final goal within that system. 
So Unaka Ramaputta has to give the explanation just based on what he has learned from his father, not on the basis of his own personal experience. And so when the Bodhisattva asks Uttaka for permit for instruction, Uttaka Ramaputta tells him about the base of neither perception nor non-perception. This is Neva Sanya, Neva Sanyana Sanyayatana, the fourth, the fourth formless attainment, which is, this is the highest level of concentrated attainment, samadhi, the highest samadhi within the system of samadha bhavana, tranquility meditation, development of tranquility. And the bodhisattva quickly enters upon the practice for that attainment and he reaches that fourth formless attainment. And so then he comes to Rama and he announces that he has reached this attainment. And when Rama gives confirmation to the Bodhisattva, I'm sorry, when Uraka gives confirmation to the Bodhisattva, he doesn't say, as Alara said, you have reached the same attainment that I have reached. Rather, he says, you have reached the same attainment that Rama had reached, presumably Rama who is now expired. And then he continues and says, so you know the Dhamma that Rama knew, and Rama knew the Dhamma that you know. As Rama was, the past tense is used here, so are you. And as you are, so was Rama. And because the Bodhisattva has now surpassed Uraka Ramaputta, Uraka says to him, Come, friend, now you lead this community. In other words, Uraka Ramaputta is saying, I can't be the teacher anymore. You're superior to me, so you be the teacher. And in effect saying, I will become your pupil. But again, the Bodhisattva thought to himself that this Dhamma, this doctrine and this practice does not lead to disenchantment, nibbita, dispassion, viraga, to cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment and nibbana, but only to reappearance or rebirth in the base of neither perception nor non-perception. In other words, it leads to rebirth into that sphere of existence which corresponds to the fourth formless meditative attainment. If somebody masters the fourth formless meditative attainment but doesn't go further in the realm of insight meditation, then on passing away, if he still has the attainment at the time of death and it's still stable, then that mental force that comes from entering and dwelling in that particular meditative state will propel the stream of consciousness to rebirth into the fourth formless realm. It's a realm of existence in which there is no physical body, just mind subsisting by itself, in which all the mental functions have become so refined, so subtle, that one can't even describe them as existent or non-existent. They still exist, but their function is so refined, so subtle, that the ordinary word for existence doesn't apply to them. In the later literature, this sphere is called bhavagga, or Sanskrit bhavagga, which means the peak of conditioned existence. 
It's the absolute highest realm of conditioned existence. Sort of the final limit, the top story of samsara. <laughs> and so those who are reborn into that realm, it's a realm of complete peace, tranquility, imperturbable equanimity. So while dwelling in that realm, one might imagine like this is final nirvana, this is the ultimate. But in fact, the Buddha has seen with his enlightenment that existence in that realm will last for, it said in the text, 84,000 great aeons, mahakalpas. Then, when the 84,000 mahakalpas are finished, and then the last hour, last minute, last second comes. When that last second transpires, then the stream of consciousness falls out of that realm and re-arises in some other realm, the round of rebirth. And then the process of karmic accumulation and re-becoming Bhava goes on from one realm to Okay, so having realized this now, the Bodhisattva didn't remain satisfied with that Kama, but again, he left it and went away. Okay, now still searching for the good, for what is wholesome, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace, he says, I wandered by stages through the Bhagavan country until eventually I arrived at Sainani Gama near Uruvela. And there I saw an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove with a clear flowing river with pleasant smooth banks and nearby a village or alms resort. Then I considered that this is a suitable place and that this will serve for the striving of a clansman, a young man, intent on striving. And so then the text says that the Bodhisattva settled down there. And then the next paragraph tells us, then being myself subject to birth, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, seeking the unborn supreme security from bondage Nibbana, I attained the unborn supreme security from bondage nibbana, and so on all the way through paragraph 18 till I attain the undefiled supreme security from bondage nibbana. And the knowledge and vision arose in me, my deliverance is unshakable, this is my last birth, now there is no renewal of being. Okay, this is according to the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. And if you just read this Sutta by itself, you get the impression <laughs> that as soon as the Bodhisattva sat down at Uruvela or Senanigama, he immediately attained enlightenment. But, as I think I said last time, in order to get an accurate picture of the sequence of events, one can't rely only on one sutta, but one has to take several suttas and put them together. Just like if you want to get a picture of, say, a house that an architect is drawing when he's designing a house, he will make up a blueprint which will show a view from the top, a view from the front, a view from the back, a view from the sides, then you can see, get a total picture of the house. And so to get a picture of the Buddha's enlightenment, one can't rely exclusively on this sutta, but one needs some other, some help from others. And one sutta which gives an account which overlaps this one, but has a kind of blow-up of what took place at Senanigama is Sutta number 36. 
reduces the longer discourse to satchita, to the ascetic satchita. And so I had copies made of the pages from Maksutta, which are relevant to our study. This is page 335. Okay, now in paragraph, I think you all have the photocopies of that. We have paragraph 13 and 16 of that sutta, which gives, in a compressed, it's actually an elated form, but it reproduces entirely the sequence that we've just gone through in sutta number 20, up to the point where the bodhisattva sits down thinking this will serve for striving. Okay, now at this point, according to this text, some similes occurred to the bodhisattva. I actually <laughs> will come back and show, I think that these suttas that the, I'm sorry, that these similes have been placed in the wrong, have been put into the wrong place in the sutta by the compilers of the canon or at some point in the transmission, since they don't make sense here. They make better sense if we take them out of here, sort of cut them out and paste them in someplace later in the sutta. But we'll just take the actual sequence that we find in the sutta then we could see as we go through the text that they will fit in better in a later position. Okay, the Bodhisattva says, Now three similes occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Suppose there was a wet, sappy piece of wood lying in water, and a man came with an upper fire stick thinking to light a fire and produce heat. <coughs> okay, so then he says, what do you think? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing it against the wet, sappy piece of wood lying in the water? And the answer is no. Why not? Because the wet sappy piece of wood is wet and so it cannot be used to start a fire. You need a dry, hard piece of firewood, not a wet, sappy piece. So the man will just become tired and disappointed. And so the Buddha says, those ascetics and Brahmins who do not live bodily and mentally withdrawn from sensual pleasures and whose sensual desire, sensual attachment and so on, have not been fully abandoned and suppressed internally. Even if those good ascetics and Brahmins feel painful, racking feelings due to their ascetic practices, they are incapable of knowledge and vision, incapable of supreme enlightenment. Again, if they do not feel painful feelings through the ascetic practices, they are incapable of enlightenment. And the reason for this is because they are still indulging in sensual pleasures and their sensual desire has not been abandoned and suppressed within. The engagement with sensual pleasures, that's like a piece of wood, firewood, which is wet and sappy. Okay, now the second simile. Okay, suppose there is a wet, sappy piece of wood lying on dry land far from water. And then a man comes with an upper fire stick wanting to start the fire. Again, he would not be able to start the fire 
because even though he takes the wet, sappy piece of wood lying on dry land, it's still wet and sappy, and so it would not serve the starting of life. This is like ascetics and Brahmins. Here I would actually suggest a change in the translation, following a different reading of some of the Pali So there are some ascetics and Brahmins who live bodily withdrawn from sensual pleasures, but not mentally withdrawn from them. Their sensual desire and affection has not been abandoned and suppressed internally. So whether those ascetics or Brahmin and Brahmins practice extreme austerities or don't practice extreme austerities, they won't be capable of enlightenment. And the reason is that even though they are withdrawn from sensual pleasures, this is like the wet sappy <coughs> piece of wood on dry land, but still, just as that wet piece of wood, that piece of sappy wood is still wet and sappy inwardly, so these ascetics and Brahmins still have sensual attachment, sensual affection within themselves, and so they cannot reach supreme enlightenment, whether or not they practice austerity. Okay, so then we have the third simile. There's a dry, sapless piece of wood on dry land far from water, and a man comes with a fire stick wanting to start a fire, and when he rubs the dry piece of wood against the fire stick, then he can start the fire. The two pieces of wood will give rise to heat, and with the heat the sparks will come up and a fire can be produced. This is like the ascetics and Brahmins who live bodily and mentally withdrawn from sensual pleasures and who have abandoned their inward sensual desire, sensual affection. The Buddha says whether they practice extreme asceticism or not, they will be capable of attaining supreme knowledge and vision, capable of attaining supreme enlightenment. Okay, this is the third simile. And now the point of the three similes, <laughs> if we take them all together, is that the key to reaching supreme enlightenment is not the practice of extreme asceticism, extreme austerity. Because according to the similes, austerities, whether one practices austerities or not, it makes no difference to the attainment of enlightenment. The essential point is whether one is bodily withdrawn from sensual pleasures in the sense of refraining from them and mentally withdrawn from them in the sense of not having attachment, not having desire, infatuation, thirst. Not though because one has cut them off. The cutting off of the sensual desire only comes through the attainment of enlightenment itself, but rather through the preliminary process of mental training. One trains oneself in such a way that one overcomes the active manifestation of the sensual desires, yet they will remain in the deep substratum of the mind as the underlying tendencies, the anusias. But in any case, the extreme ascetic practices are, make no contribution at all to the attainment of enlightenment. That is the point of the three similes. But now, in the following paragraph, we see the Bodhisattva 
start to undertake extreme ascetic practices. <laughs> the conclusion he comes to is that they are useless and futile. Why should he undertake them? The commentary, of course, <laughs> accepts the text that has come down and then gives an explanation that even though the Bodhisattva realized that the ascetic practices are useless, still he had to undertake the practices in order to show that he had conformed to the established criterion in those days of a true spiritual striver, which was to undertake ascetic practices and also to show that he had carried the ascetic practices to the final limits without reaching enlightenment through them. And that is the way the commentary explains it. But as you'll see, we'll take more will take more sense if we cut out these paragraphs on the three similes and then paste them in at a later point. Okay, I won't read all of the descriptions of the aesthetic practices in detail. If you have the copy, you can just read those at the leisure. Just it's enough to know that first the Bodhisattva tried practicing certain types of, you might call, ascetic meditation. Types of meditation which did not aim so much at gradually calming and stilling the mind as at forcefully suppressing it and even causing pain to arise in the body. He says, I, with my teeth clenched, my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mind with mind. Then he undertook a practice called the non-breathing meditation, which seems to be a kind of meditative technique, maybe akin to yoga, in which one forcefully stops breathing, that the respiration will take place through the ears rather than through the nostrils or mouth. Then he followed that various several stages in that non-breathing meditation until he was subject to extremely violent racking pains going all through the body until he became even exhausted by the full striving. And he repeatedly emphasizes that this painful feeling that arose did not in remain upsetting his mind. He was still able to withstand the painful feeling. But it was so powerful, this painful feeling, and so exhausting these ascetic practices that some devatas saw him engaged in these practices and they thought that they thought that the ascetic Gotama is dead whereas others thought that he was not dead but dying and others said that he is neither dead nor dying but he is an Arahant for such is the way the Arahants abide. Apparently here the Devas are relying upon a pre-Buddhistic conception of the Arahant. The word Arahant was actually a pre-Buddhistic term and amongst the Jains and some of the other extreme ascetic cults, the Arahant was depicted as one who had carried fasting and ascetic practices to their ultimate culmination, even to the point of bordering on death. But I have to say, I actually think this paragraph, too, has been taken out of its proper context, or out of its proper place, and been it's almost as though the text had been written on separate overleafs, and somebody had dropped them <laughs> and thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? All the monks are depending on me to get the leaves in the right order. <laughs> the whole future of the sutta depends on this, and I have to go and drop the leaves on the ground. 
let me see, let me use my judgment. <laughs> but he was not a very intelligent monk, <laughs> so he got the different pieces in the wrong order. <laughs> and then because of that, the sutta has come down to us in a wrong sequence. Okay, it makes better sense to me that we skip paragraph 26 for now. We go from paragraph 25 to paragraph 27. Okay, now the Bodhisattva undertakes other ascetic practices, even more extreme. He wants to cut off taking food completely. Then devas come to him and say, do not practice complete fasting. But if you do so, then we shall infuse heavenly nutriment, celestial nutriment, into the pores of your skin, and you will live on that. But then the Bodhisattva reflected and he thought, if I claim to be fasting completely, but I'm accepting these infusions of divine nutriment, then it's a kind of cheating. <laughs> cheating in my fast. It's a little bit like maybe if, <laughs> say, monks were to be claiming we don't eat solid food after midday, but then they have an agreement amongst themselves that if somebody makes kanji <laughs> and offers it to them, they'll call it tea <laughs> and say, we only drink tea after this day. <laughs> but in fact, they're taking kanji or kenta <laughs> full of rice grains and other nutritious substance. So if the Bodhisattva thinks, if I claim to be fasting completely, but I'm accepting the infusions of divine nutriment, that would be a kind of cheating. So the Buddha rejected the deities and say, I don't need that. I don't want it. Okay, then he started, he must have fasted completely for some time, but he couldn't sustain that forever. So then he started taking very little food, very reducing intake of food, till his body became just like a skeleton. So when he would rub his, when he would touch his belly, he could feel the spine in the back. If he could reach, if he reached behind to feel the spine, then he could feel his belly. You can read this paragraph if you want to get the details of the ascetic practices. He said, I want to take just the one sentence where he says, because of eating so little, if I urinated or defecated, I fell over on my face there. It would seem to me that the opinion of the deities over whether the Rikus Gotama is dead or not dead seems to fit in best right in that place. When he falls over, when defecating or urinating, then the deities are uncertain whether he's dead or still alive. And some might think that <laughs> that this is the practice of the arahants to continue these extreme this extreme fasting for so long. Okay, then when some people saw him, then they thought the Rikus Gotama is black. Others thought that he is brown, others that he is golden skin. That is because the clear, bright color of his skin had deteriorated through eating so little. It seems that the color of his skin had changed so much that people were not able to determine the original color of his skin. Okay, now he thinks to himself, whatever recluses or Brahmins in the past have experienced painful, rocking, piercing feelings due to exertion, 
this is the utmost, there is none beyond this. And whatever recluses and Brahmins in the future will experience painful feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost, there is none beyond this. And whatever recluses and Brahmins at present experience painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion, this is the utmost, there is none beyond this. By this racking practice of austerities, I have not attained any superior, superhuman state, any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. And now it seems to me, I think some others have commented on that this would be the appropriate place for the three similes to occur. Because those similes summarize the conclusion that the extreme aesthetic practices are useless. And if we put them in there, then it seems to be the natural conclusion that the Bodhisattva is drawing based on this whole aesthetic regimen which he has just followed. And though this account of the aesthetic practices is very compressed, according to other texts and according to the Buddhist tradition, it was actually spread out over six years. Okay, and if we go back to the end of the three similes, back to the end of paragraph 19, we have, okay, these are the three similes that occurred to me spontaneously, never heard before. Then we take up the question, then they could follow quite naturally. The next question, could there be another path to enlightenment? And now the Bodhisattva reflects. We're in paragraph 31. I recall, or he says, I considered, I recall that in my childhood, well that's understood, it's not in the text, but this refers to an incident which took place in his childhood once when he was a young aristocrat or a young prince there was annually the Sakyans would hold a festival called the Plowing Festival in which the leader of the clan which was his father Sudodhana would begin plowing the ground this was at the beginning of the plowing season it was a festival which was held as a way of invoking the blessings of the devas on the uh, on the land so that it would yield a an abundant harvest. And so the leader, the Sakin Sudodana, would undertake a ceremonial plowing. I guess with the blessings of the Brahmin priests who would recite the mantras of the Vedas in order to make the land holy and fertile. And they had brought the Bodhisattva along to witness the ceremony and placed him under the shade of a tree. And while the Sakyans and everybody were attending to the plowing ceremony, everybody left the little prince alone sitting under the tree. And while he was sitting alone there, just spontaneously, he crossed his legs and started to attend to his breath. And spontaneously, while he was following the breath, he entered into the first jhana. And according to the legend that's come down, legend or not, I don't know, but according to the story that's come down in the commentary, while he was sitting there the sh with the shade of the tree over him, time went by and the sun would have moved across the sky, but the shade of the tree did not move, but continued to shelter the Bodhisattva. 
then when the community, the Sakyan community came back find the Bodhisattva with the, his father at the head he saw the Bodhisattva sitting there with the legs crossed absorbed in the jhana and with the shadow of the tree still over him so everywhere else the shadows had <coughs> and then the king, the, Bodhi, the, the Bodhisattva's father bowed down and worshipped the Bodhisattva realizing that this was some kind of supernatural marvel that took place over the sun. We don't find that full elaborate account in the canon, but just an allusion to it. So he thinks to himself, okay, I recall that when my father, the Sakyan, was occupied at work plowing the ground, while I was sitting in the cool shade of the rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Then he asks, or he asks himself, could that be the path to enlightenment? Then he says, following on that memory, there came the realization that is the path to enlightenment. Then he thought to himself, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? Then he concluded, I am not, or I should not be afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. Okay, then I consider to myself, I'll read the passage and I'll give some reflections on it. I consider it isn't easy to attain that pleasure with a body so excessively emaciated. You should remember that he still has not yet resumed taking normal food. His body has still been reduced just to skin and bone, and he's become so weak that he still falls over on his face. Okay, suppose I ate some solid food, some boiled rice and kumasa, Earlier it was translated bread, but I think that's not correct. It's more like a kind of porridge, perhaps like kanji. And so I ate some solid food, boiled rice and porridge. And at the time there were five other ascetics who were associating with him, attending on the bodhisattva, thinking that if anyone is going to reach enlightenment, it's going to be this prince of the Sakyan plan. And according to the commentary, these five ascetics were one of them was an Anya Kandanyo, who had been one of the Brahmins present at the birth of the Bodhisattva, and the others were relatives of the Brahmins who attended on on the Bodhisattva when he was just who had examined the Bodhisattva when he was just born. Okay, these five ascetics, when they saw the Bodhisattva resuming to take normal food, they became disgusted with him and left him, abandoned him, thinking that the ascetic Gotama has given up spiritual striving. He's now just living a life of ease and luxury, just, again, filling himself with food and not really making an earnest effort for enlightenment. And so they deserted him. Okay, now, before we go further, I want to bring up an interesting question. The question is, when the Bodhisattva 
was training under Alara Kalama and Uddhagarama Puta. We read that he reached the seventh stage of concentration and the eighth stage of concentration, right? The base of nothingness, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. First had to go through the training in the lower jhanas, mastering in sequence the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, then the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness. Only after that, attaining the base of nothingness. Yet in this account of his enlightenment here, he doesn't recollect his training under the two meditation masters, but instead goes back to childhood and recollects that experience of the first jhana when he was just a young boy. Why is that so? A possibility that this kind of mentality could easily skip for Rupa Jans. That is one thing. And, but then to come back again for enlightenment to that first experience is maybe to clean up all those memories and start by himself to experience these two the form worlds up to the to the more uh, forms practice of Arupa Jhanas in this in the society. That could be a possibility. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Myself, myself I have uh, yeah. Also being puzzled by that. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, yeah. Why is that? Why is it coming back? But uh, probably also because that childhood experience uh, has much more stronger. You can have much more stronger confidence in it yeah. because it is grown up by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Something that he attained by himself yes, without the guidance. Yes, I said, like the other things, then uh, he yes. must pass them also then. Yes. Yeah, I think when, when we are going on a, on a really start again on the yes. beginnings, that yes. was a intelligent kind of beginning. Yes. That is what I... Yes. That's good. I can't know anything. Something he attained by himself. Because maybe it is his first genuine. He has to come back to himself after yeah. he has tried the way of others. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to go back in yeah. his memories to remember the first way. That's a good, a good, a good conjecture. That's also possible. Though the text here, I think it doesn't actually see the text. The sutta text itself doesn't mention what kamatana he practiced. I, yeah, yeah. So I think he and then got all the That could be possible also. because there's no explanation in the text. I, I don't even think the commentary ever takes up that question. So it's always left just as a kind of puzzle, almost like a... Yeah, the point that the you can go through the house by 
The attitude towards the jhanas and towards pleasure itself was that pleasure is to be shunned and one is to go through the lower jhanas quickly in order to get to the formless attainments in which equanimity prevails. Okay, the dominant quality of the formless attainments is equanimity. The pleasure of those attainments will just be seen as stepping stone of the lower attainments, stepping stones to be gone through very quickly because pleasure is to be feared. So one is to go into these equanimous, peaceful, formless states. Okay, then when, even when the Bodhisattva gave up on those formless attainments and undertook the ascetic practices, then the attitude was that pain and self-mortification is the way to enlightenment. So then he worked with the thesis, okay, that he's still working with the presupposition that all pleasure is bad and self-inflicted pain <coughs> can be beneficial. Okay, now he wants to show that there can be a pleasure which is beneficial and useful, helpful to the quest for enlightenment. So he will go to a lower level of meditative attainment, the level of even the first jhana, having discovered that there is a kind of pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, a kind of pleasure which is not to be feared. And this gives us, I think, the insight into what, like the real nature of the Majjhima Patipata, the middle way. Often it's characterized simply as avoiding the extremes of sensual pleasure and self-mortification. But 
I think it be, could be characterized more broadly in this way. See, the Buddha's conception of the way to enlightenment as a happy and pleasurable way was quite a radical departure from the prevalent mood and ideas in Indian asceticism at the time that the Buddha appeared. There the dominant idea was that the way to enlightenment should be either through complete formless equanimous meditative attainments like Alara and Uddhagaramaputta or through painful self-mortification. And so what the Buddha did was to take on the one hand sensual pleasure and take the pleasure out of the pleasant the pleasant part while rejecting the sensual sens, sen, sensual part and then taking painful renunciation of the self of those who followed self mortification accepting the renunciation aspect but rejecting the painful aspect and then combining pleasure and renunciation then one has a pleasant path of renunciation which culminates in nirvana, the final goal which is a state of pleasure paramasutta if one looks at this sutta if one reads the sutta number 36 after each of the ascetic practices that the Buddha undertook after the Buddha explains each of the ascetic practices that he undertook as a bodhisattva, he says, but such painful feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. This shows that the Buddha remained impervious to the painful feeling. Now, having found the jhanas as a way to enlightenment, he enters into each of these jhanas and in each case, he says, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. So this shows that what one does in following the middle way is to take the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of the jhanas, and use it as a vehicle for the development of the mind without becoming attached to it, without latching onto it, and then becoming swept away by it. You mean that renunciation itself creates the pleasure? It can be pleasant, yeah. But can it also be uh, more elevated or refined yeah. pleasure drawn out of intellectual understanding? Or which kind of pleasure? can it be if it's not sensitive? I'm trying to think. Well, there's a pleasure that comes from intellectual reflection, but that's not relevant to this comparison right now. Here, the Buddha is just taking, because he's trying to show the middle way, or his, the path that he discovered as a middle way between the extremes. So the extremes that he says should be avoided by one who has gone forth from the world is one is the extreme of attachment or indulgence and sensual pleasures. The other is the extreme of self-mortification. That's the usual way, the middle, the middle way is explained. But as I want to show here, the middle way is not only avoiding, avoiding two extremes, but it's taking certain positive qualities in those extremes and combining them into a beneficial whole. Felicitous whole. Okay. Any questions or comments? This is as far as we will go today. Questions, comments. Your question about piti sambhavanga. I mean, that's part of the Buddha's pleasant middle way. But I don't want to sort of go off and to go into the bhavangas would be going off on a tangent just now. If you try left to himself to get to the first jhana because on his mind we live not every child no, no. well I'm trying to stretch yeah. to, to draw conclusions from yeah. if 
we go back to our most genuine experiment, yeah. we find it. But is it the fruit of education or the naturalness which is in us? Or and then I meet Freud saying, no way, it doesn't work that way. We are bad. You see what I mean? Where where is it drawn from? Is it because he was well educated by his father? Or is it because that he was able to enter into this data? Yeah. No. Into into listening only to his mind and then enter the first time. This would have definitely come spontaneously without any prior prompting from anybody else, without any prior training. In fact, according to the legendary account of the life of the Buddha, when he was born, the court astrologers or the court Brahmins told his father that this boy has only two destinies, either if he remains in the home life, he will become a great king who will rule over all of India. Or if he sees the sorrows of the world, he will become a world teacher, a Buddha. And so the father didn't want the son to become a religious teacher. He wanted the son to become a great king. And so the father tried to do everything possible to protect him from seeing the sorrows of the world. But I think this would have come just from his previous we call vasanas, accumulations from previous lives oh, that he was disposed to. He would have been as training for Buddhahood through many, many lives, right. so he naturally had this meditative bent of mind. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.